And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, June 23rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this federal institution has an institution all of its own. Plus, a new prescription for effective government from a longtime observer. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department is looking to build up the data literacy of its acquisition workforce. Its Defense Acquisition University is on a mission to upskill more than 3,000 military and civilian professionals across the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. DAU is looking to train these employees on data analytics and artificial intelligence to better understand the emerging tech DOD's buying. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the director of the Engineering and Technology Center at DAU, David Pearson. There's broad recognition across all of the Department of Defense that we really need to step up our game in the area of data skills. Far too often, decisions at all levels are being oftentimes made on dated anecdotes or simply the opinion of the senior most person in the room. We really need to change that. For the acquisition workforce, DAU is working to develop data-related skills at three levels. First is simply awareness training, trying to facilitate the needed cultural change where data is used to inform decisions. Second, I'd say it's general data literacy training. People, our employees, our workforce, know enough about data to make those informed decisions. And then finally, applied knowledge on deeper data management, governance, and analysis skills. And we're doing this using our platform strategy, connecting our students with commercial content and combining it with DAU-authored courseware. Closer to home, you know, in the execution of our mission, DAU is using data to help us determine what courses to build, how to improve upon them using student feedback, and to inform when to retire a course. Today, we're using some very fundamental skills to collect and analyze the data, which is presented in dashboards. But looking ahead, we're excited about more fully instrumenting our courseware. Rather than relying solely upon subjective student survey data, we want to document student behaviors and how they're interacting, particularly with our online courses, so we can use this information to make the targeted improvements we need to our courseware, further advancing our mission. Okay. And, you know, I understand there's a pretty clear goal here to upskill 3,000 military and civilian professionals with these kinds of data analytics and AI skills. What's the timeline for that to actually be a reality? Well, you know, I'd like to think that we already have extensive data and AI skills training available to all 155,000 members of DOD's acquisition workforce. You know, the time it takes to listen to this podcast, thanks to our partnerships, an acquisition workforce member could enroll in a 34-hour course from the University of Michigan on programming in Python for data analytics, or they could take an AI product management course from Duke. We've made this and thousands of other courses available through our partnership with Coursera. But you know, we still got a lot of work to do here. First is curation. With dozens of courses available, DAU needs to help our workforce members select the best data training for their needs. With so much out there and recognizing that our students' time is very valuable, we want to be guiding students to the right courses for them. So we're doing an awful lot of time curating training pathways and credentials to really guide our students to the right content to meet what their challenges. The second thing we're doing is we're trying to add context to our commercial training. As you know very well, we've got lots of rules, policies, and work practices and unique problem sets here in DOD when it comes to using data and AI. So DAU adds unique value by teaching students how to apply these data and AI skills to our unique DOD acquisition environment. Through our credentials and our standalone training, DAU authored courses add the necessary context to data and artificial intelligence. And uh, we have some learning assets online now and more in the pipeline. And finally, looking a little bit further down the road, we have to more tightly align our curation with the work the Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office is doing with formalizing role-based knowledge, skills, abilities, and skills. That's still a, a little bit of ways down the road for us. Got it. You know, to drill a little bit deeper into this whole topic here, how is this rescaling and upscaling effort key to DOD driving better retention, better recruitment of the kinds of personnel they will need for the mission going further? What I've seen in, in the tech space is just how important ongoing skill development is. 
know, the pace of change is just tremendous. And I've seen that in the, the people working in the tech space really recognize themselves that in order for them to stay competitive and stay relevant in their particular discipline, they have to be committed to a continuum of continuous improvement and skills and advancement. The skills that we hired people for 15 years ago are no longer the skills we're going to be needing to field the systems of our future that our warfighters are going to be depending upon. The emerging technology that's going to be driving the performance of our defense systems that we send out to the field increasingly rely upon those who have the technical skills properly manage and acquire them in the future. So it's an imperative that we use our upskilling capabilities and platforms like we're working with our partners to refresh our skills and, and give our workforce the incentives and the pathways to keep those skills up to date. I understand that there's kind of some levels to the literacy that the workforce is going to need for these skills. You said there's kind of like three tiers to it, but ultimately is this upskilling effort for the acquisition workforce to better understand the types of products the DoD is buying? Is it more their own individual workflows? Is it a little bit of both? Help me understand just kind of what those day-to-day functions are that this reskilling and upskilling will help them meet those goals. It's a blend of skills depending upon what your role is in the acquisition process. If you're a cost estimator, for example, there's a certain set of skills that you're going to need to go ahead in order to properly do good estimates and more analysis skills using the methods you would use there. If you are a, a systems engineer, for example, you know so much of what we're doing in the future is going to be based upon digital models. And all of these are based upon sound, common sets of data in order to make that happen. So we have to have a program which is flexible enough and tailorable enough that I can get to the skill specific skill sets that that student needs, not only in what he or she are currently doing, but also what he or she may be doing in the future, right? As you switch roles, as you move from job to job or from domain to domain or platform to platform, Uh, There are some new skills you may need to learn in order to be effective in doing your job. And by creating a broad set of curriculum objects for our students, they'll give them the flexibility to learn the new skills they need depending upon the job and the time and point they are in their careers. To kind of keep going on with that thread there, it seems to me that with the current pace of technology change and organizational change, that this is really going to be something that pretty wide swath of DOD personnel are going to need this continuous learning, this continuous training, and this need to reskill and upskill over time. David, in terms of that, how prevalent do you think this is going to be for the DOD workforce over time? I think that you're going to see tremendous prevalence of the continuous need for training. Burden for training is shifting, I think, significantly across DAU and our acquisition workforce. You know, if you remember the model used to be, hey, we would prescribe a whole bunch of required training. We'd decide for you what you needed to learn. And then we'd build courses for that. And you would come to our schoolhouse and we would teach that to you with a a facilitated instructor who would keep you motivated and keep you engaged. But we're not doing that anymore, okay? We've really reduced down the amount of mandatory training to just a minimal amount, opting instead to create a, a wide variety of tailorable and customized elective training that you as a student, together with your supervisor, have to engage and take on your own. David Pearson, director of the Engineering and Technology Center of Defense Acquisition University, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a new prescription for effective government from a longtime observer, this is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The nation seems to have both more problems and more government than ever. My next guest makes the case in a new book that more collaboration with what he calls bridge builders will be more effective than the traditional approach, where you build a new organization for each problem, then dump money on it. Bridge Builders co-author Don Kettle, professor of public policy at the University of Texas, Austin, joins me now. Dr. Kettle, always a pleasure. Tom, it is so good to be with you again. And let's acknowledge right away that your co-author on this is Bill Eggers of Deloitte, also been on the show, and so the two of you have created this book. What do you mean by Bridge Builders, which is both the title and the theme? 
Exactly. And what we have in mind is not only a theme, but a new strategy for the way in which we think government ought to operate. The basic problem is that so often we think about government, and by we, I mean sometimes people in the media, ordinary citizens, even policymakers in Congress and in the executive branch, tend to think of government as a kind of vending machine. You put money in the top and pull the lever and wait for the services to come out the bottom. And not surprisingly, that doesn't work very well anymore because government is no longer a kind of vertical machine where we can count on hierarchy, where we can count on authority, where we can count on a vertical control to make things happen. More and more of problems, as you pointed out, Tom, are complex. They require actions across organizations, across levels of government, across the sectors, even across national borders. And that really means that more and more of government is horizontal. And what we need, we argue in the book, is a transition from this vending machine model to an approach that's more horizontal, much more with government being like an orchestra conductor, trying to coordinate the music played by maybe as many as 100 different instruments into a concerted whole to make beautiful music and deliver far better policies and policy implementation for citizens out there. Yeah, because right now, some of the long-standing programs that continue to be fraught with fraud instances and lack of accountability are some of the federally funded but state-administered welfare programs, unemployment insurance, the food stamp program, all of these things that get smeared, the money, through the states. But yet, often, they're not that effective over the long run, and they are often very unaccountable. And when they get overwhelmed by the surges, We see how much fraud has taken place in SBA programs, unemployment insurance, and so forth. So that does seem to argue in favor that this is not the answer. Yeah, we we keep trying it and we keep discovering that it doesn't work and it's time to try to discover something else. And you're right, Tom, so many of the problems, both of fraud, waste, and abuse, but maybe even more importantly, the kind of effectiveness of government programs, the, the problems come about because we just simply have the wrong model in our heads for how best to try to produce the results. One of the things that's fascinating, if you look at what's going on in the Texas border, not too far from where I'm sitting here in Austin, is that there are tens of thousands of migrants coming across the border, and everybody's trying to figure out what to do. And it's one thing to manage the flow at the border itself, but but what happens three blocks away from the border, where people come, they need housing, they need food, they need efforts to try to find themselves jobs, they especially need help to navigate the federal paperwork. And what's happened is that a large collection of non-governmental entities have stepped up to try to fill the gap. The Office of Federal Refugee Resettlement, this is one of my favorite statistics about the federal government right now. The Federal Office of Refugee Resettlement has a total of 150 employees to try to deal with tens of thousands of migrants coming in. So so what's the strategy? And the answer is that there is a church about three or four blocks from the border that's become the center for efforts to try to deal with the issue. It has put together a network of Catholic charities, of other nonprofits, of transportation systems, not only in El Paso, but across the country. And the success in trying to deal with this massive problem has really fallen to a very complex coordination among these different organizations, some governmental, many non-governmental. And the result has been something of remarkable effectiveness, but it's the story that for the most part doesn't get told. We're speaking with Don Kettle. He's co-author of Bridge Builders, along with Deloitte's Bill Eggers. And I wanted to ask you then, how does the accountability come into this? Because when you have all of these NGOs or local operators administering programs with the government orchestrating, and you do have that small federal staff, yet that is the staff ultimately responsible for finance and performance. So how do you build that function in when you don't have very many people? The key here is not to try to reach out and and grab the throats of everybody getting the money and shaking and squeezing until they do what you want. It's rather a matter of coordinating them to try to understand what it is that each of them contributes to the process. And most importantly, instead of focusing on process, focusing on outcomes. It's a lesson that we learned, on the other hand, in, in Houston, which succeeded in reducing its level of homelessness by 63% in about five years. I'm 63% in one of the nation's most complicated problems. And the way that they did that was to create the Houston Coalition for the Homeless, which is essentially the orchestra conductor. They're the bridge builder. And they brought together 100 different organizations that worked collaboratively 
to try to help solve the problems of people who are experiencing homelessness and do it in a way to understand how what kind of problems and issues each individual experiencing homelessness has, what organization can step in to try to help solve the problem about how it is that individuals can be tracked through the system and then track the performance of the individual organizations as well. This is a coalition larger than any symphony orchestra out there. It's a more complicated problem than any orchestra conductor ever has to try to deal with, but it's worked successfully because of this effort that has happened in Houston with bridge builders who make the connections among the organizations where accountability is defined by the outcomes that they produce. Do you think that the U.S. Agency for International Development is a good example of where that's already happening? Because in the countries where they operate, it's not USAID people actually administering the programs, but simply finding the non-governmental entities and sometimes charities and so on, contractors that do the work that they are developing in those countries, but it's not USAID people themselves hammering nails and whatever. That's right. That's that's a hidden secret about the American foreign aid process these days, because the Agency for International Development is not so much the service deliverer out there, as you point out, but it's the orchestra conductor to bring together nonprofits and other organizations that succeed in focusing on the problems ranging from trying to eradicate malaria to trying to deal with the fundamental problems of electricity generation and providing better homes for people out there. It's not AID, but AID that provides some but not all funding. It's AID that proves an orchestra conductor to bring these different nonprofits and NGOs together to try to produce the results and where they focus on accountability understood in their ability to be able to produce these outcomes. It's the same way, actually, that, that Bill Gates has launched his major effort to try to eradicate malaria. It's, it's not Bill Gates personally out there providing mosquito nets, but rather it's an effort to try to create this broad network that has had tremendous success in reducing malaria. And it's a problem that Bill Gates thinks that may be possible to be solved in the next decade, but possible to be solved only in the way in which these organizations work together. How might the distributed, bridged concept have helped the nation through the pandemic more effectively, do you think? There's good news and bad news here. The good news is that the previous all-time record for developing a vaccine to fight against a disease was the creation of the vaccine for mumps. That took four years. Instead, Operation Warp Speed managed to do it in nine months. That's just a staggeringly good accomplishment. And it happened because the White House coordinated the efforts of a series of different drug producers, didn't try to do it itself, but rather provided funding and provided support and provided a way to try to create quickly a market for distributing the vaccines. And so that worked with remarkable skill. But on the other hand, the effort to try to identify who it is who was being affected by COVID, how fast it was spreading, what kind of strategies of public health might be needed, how to bring state and local governments on board. That was just a tough, tough situation and maybe not quite serious enough to call it a disaster, but it certainly didn't work very well. And it's the lesson of what not to do the next time around. And one of the things that's remarkable is that even to try to track the spread of COVID, everybody ended up relying on the system created by Johns Hopkins and their incredible data space that they created. And their dashboard was the, the system that everybody used to guide it, but they did it because the federal government didn't. And so it was a failure there of the federal government's efforts to coordinate what is that needed to be done when it came to fighting the disease in public health. But when it came to developing the vaccine, it was in many ways a, a miracle, the kind of bridge building strategy we're talking about. And so who are you hoping will read Bridge Builders, the book? We hope it's a it's a book that will be of interest to, to just about anybody who cares about improving government. But we put an appendix in the back for new leaders coming in with a 100-day plan for how new leaders can come in and try to not only get control of their agencies, but find out how to steer them in more effective ways. We have a syllabus in the back for instructors who say, well, this is kind of interesting. How do I teach this? And so we have that. Uh, we have, I think, lessons for the many, many partners that government has in the private and nonprofit sectors, the, the federal, state, and local governments to understand what their roles are and most importantly, to create a new mindset that focuses on accountability based on outcomes, as opposed to accountability understood in terms of, I'm going to make you obey this rule or else. University of Texas public policy professor Don Kettle is co-author of Bridge Builders, along with Deloitte's Bill Eggers. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Tom, it's such a pleasure having a chance to talk about this. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, VA finds zero-trust cybersecurity is an uphill slog. But first, this federal institution has an institution of its own. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Can a federal department have an institution? Health and Human Services does. Its institution is a person, Bill Hall, who recently retired after, get this, 43 years in public affairs. He retired as a deputy assistant secretary, and he joins me now. Mr. Hall, good to have you in studio. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. And everybody in the government deals with it, but I'm not sure everyone knows the scope of what's required and what happens in the public affairs function. So just give us a quick overview. You know, the public affairs is a broad range of work, and it really focuses on communicating the work that the government does. No matter what department or agency you're in, the government does a tremendous amount of good work for the American people. And the only way to tell the American people about it is to communicate about it in an effective way that's understandable. So at HHS, you know, clearly our focus is on the health and well-being of, of Americans. So it's critical in the public affairs community, the team there, to be able to help our scientists, our medical experts to try to explain things as clearly and as simply as possible to the American public so they know what they're getting for their their tax dollars and what can be helpful to them as far as what the government's doing to help them. And often, though, the public communications that is direct to, say, the public through television or whatever is during a crisis. And often the crisis, in the case of public health crises, which HHS has dealt with a series of them in your tenure of 43 Mm -hmm. years, sometimes the government isn't exactly performing the way it necessarily should. And this is true of a lot of agencies. So there's that tension, too, sometimes there, isn't there? Yes. You know, I think that in any public health emergency, any kind of disease outbreak, there's no perfect way to do it. There are lots of different parties or elements involved. I mean, there's the scientists, there's the policymakers, you have legislators, you have local officials. So you have lots of different groups that have their own interests and ways of doing things. So you really have to kind of walk through that minefield, if you will, to sort of communicate as effectively as you can, keeping in mind all the policy and political and legal ramifications that come into play. So it's a challenge. It's it's not an easy, you know, pick up the book and here's how you do it. Each emergency is different and each one has its own challenges. And so you have to kind of draw upon your knowledge and experience and past experiences with previous outbreaks and previous emergencies to sort of help guide you in whatever the new the new situation is. And watching, you know, successive, say, White House press secretaries or different spokespeople of not as a journalist from my standpoint, but just watching TV when something is going on, it seems to me that a really important quality in that type of public affairs when you are communicating in some important happening, good or bad, is a relatability a sense that the person is genuine and not just giving a party line true? Absolutely. And I think trust and credibility is key and most important when talking to the American public. And so, you know, our scientists, a lot of them, very, very smart people. Some are a lot better at communicating to the public than others. You know, some of them are, when it comes to work talking to each other as scientists, they talk just quite fine with each other. But when they have to talk to the public, it's a challenge. So part of what public affairs does is try to help them get to that point. And so our job is to try to identify who are the best experts and who can communicate most effectively to share the right messages to the public. And it depends on the medium as well. So if it's a newspaper or a telephone interview, that's very different than doing a television interview, a live interview on radio or what have you. So there's different techniques. And we do a lot of media training for our experts as well to help get them to you know, play these things out in a safe environment where they can like make the mistakes and kind of learn before they go on and, and do it for real. Well, as long as you never gave them scripts to read because no, that, that's no, deadly. No. And a lot of public <laughs> affairs people do, and I can hear it. No, <laughs> Even no. We're not in the same room. We let our scientists speak. We don't give them scripts. But if they say something a certain way and it's like, and I don't understand it, and having been in the business for 40-plus years, I'm like, let's take a step back. Let's try to think of a different way to say this. Not tell them word for word, but 
Say it again in a different way. How would you explain it to your mother or to your neighbor? We are speaking with Bill Hall. He retired recently as Deputy Assistant Secretary of HHS for Public Affairs. And dealing with the press, of course, is a big part of Mm -hmm. public affairs. How would you say it has changed? Is the press getting more doctrinaire? Is it getting more partisan? Is it having an axe to grind or a point of view that it wishes to push relative to 43 years ago? You know, I think in the world of science and medical communications, I think that there is more divisiveness, I think, among the media. And I think that's simply a reflection of the partisan nature, uh, divisive nature that we see ourselves right now in this country. But there is a cadre of good science reporters who are really there to get the story, to get the information, and they don't come at it from a partisan perspective. And those are the ones who we really work with the most anyway. So there's always going to be different viewpoints that people come to a story with. Clearly, the technology that we use today is very different than it was 40 years ago when I started. You know, CNN had just started on the air a few months before I started working for the government. So today, anyone with a smartphone can be out there live streaming something. And that's probably one of the biggest challenges is reacting to all of this stuff that appears on the internet almost instantly. And you don't really have the time to plan your response, think through what's happening here, and you're being forced to react immediately. And that's very different than it was many, many years ago. And also, if something is a phenomenon on social media, it gets reported as, look what's happening on social media. Mm -hmm. But it could be that what is happening on social media is nonsense. Correct. Just being pushed by 10,000 people who want to push something that really has no connection with importance in reality. Correct. The problem is that there are media who will see that happening and think, that's a story. There's controversy. Let's go cover that. And so then it appears on a more mainstream media outlet and people see that and they go, oh, this must have some validity to it. And it's just a thing that just builds upon itself. So Yeah, yes. I never understood the story. Twitter says, and therefore, right. like, be quiet. <laughs> go, go, find your, go find a real story. Just personal prejudice here. And let's talk about you for a minute. 43 years, mm-hmm. did you work in the private sector first, or have you been always at HHS? Tell us about your own journey here. So my entire career was in with HHS and the federal government. I started in 1980, right out of college. When I went to college, I always had a love and passion for science and medicine. And so while I was in college, I thought, I'll go into medicine, go into perhaps be a doctor, study you know biology and so forth. And while I was there, as a sort of a side extracurricular activity, they had a couple radio stations at the college campus managed. And this was where? St. Lawrence University. Upstate New York. Upstate New York. And they had an AM college campus station, and then they hosted, uh, housed a NPR station there as well. And so I got involved in the college station and worked my way up and was the general manager. And I just loved doing it. It was a fun thing to do besides studying for exams. And as I went through my, my college career, I then got hired by the National Public Radio Station while I was at school to work there as well. So I got to experience all aspects of broadcasting, you know, and radio broadcasting. So writing news, going out in the field to report, hosting music programs, everything you could probably do in, in, in radio. And I just, I just loved it. So I decided that, you know, maybe that's where I really want to go with my career. So I thought, I don't have any academic background at this point, so let me do that. So I came to the University of Maryland, went to their journalism school, worked at their college station for a little bit, uh, their college newspaper. While I was there, I needed a few extra dollars in my pocket. And on the bulletin board, they had an ad for a job at a place called the National Institutes of Health, part-time writer, (laughs) editor job. Thought, I'll apply for it. You know, I don't think much will happen to it. Didn't know too much about NIH. I'd I'd heard of it, but wasn't too familiar with it. Long story short, they hired me. I was a student appointment, part-time job, and spent several years in that part-time role, and then they offered me a permanent job. And I got to work with some of the the world's greatest and smartest scientists and, and researchers, worked my way up through a variety of offices at NIH, 
and got to really expand my ability to work with the media. I ran a program where we hosted large press conferences several times a year where the agency would announce new clinical guidance for doctors around the country based on the research that NIH was doing. And so it was a great interface with the media and with the public to communicate that science. And after about 17, 18 years at NIH, I was like, okay, this is great, but there's more out there. There's got to be more out there. And I was fortunate to get hired by the department in their public affairs office, the headquarters, where I got to continue not only to work with NIH, but now with CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Food and Drug Administration, all of the other public health agencies in the department. So that just was just wonderful because I got to to experience all the, the entire spectrum of how HHS helps Americans every day. And how many secretaries have come and gone in your tenure? 13. Wow. 13. And I guess later on in the career, you had more contact with them. Any mm-hmm. any good stories from that that part of your life? Oh, you know, they were all great people. The eight that I worked with directly when I was at headquarters, all wonderful people, every single one of them, their core desire was to help the American people and improve their health and well-being. Each one was different, pers- different approaches to, to management, but all great to work with, all really great to work with. You know, a lot of great stories, but no one particular that I want to Single out, per se. <laughs> no. Well, that's always the public affairs guy, even, exactly. even in retirement. And federal employment, that sounds satisfying for you. Have you sensed a change in federal employment, the conditions, the attitudes toward it in those years? I think it goes through ebbs and flows. We see peaks and then dips in interest. I think of late, you know, it, it's in part what the public's perspective and, and opinion of the government is at a given point in time can drive the the young people coming up as to whether they want to go into government or not. You know, I think there's probably a sentiment out there that the government doesn't pay as well as the private sector. And I think that's, you know, pretty much everyone, you know, has has, realizes that. But the thing that the government does that you can't get anywhere else is really the ability to make the job what you want it to be. Yeah, you've got a position description and you've got certain job duties, but if you have ideas of how to expand the work, of trying new things, most times you have the opportunity to do that. So you can experience a lot of new and different things sort of outside your normal job if you have that drive, the creativity, you know, and the support. Too. I had a lot of great support from the secretaries and other people I worked with. So that's the one thing I found with government is, you know, really an ability to, you know, do these things for the American public in, in very creative ways. And I have to ask you, COVID, the COVID era and HHS, I mean, that was formative in many people's minds for HHS. What was it like on the inside from the public affairs standpoint? Busy is the understatement. From the moment we learned of some cases in China in early January of 2020, uh, we were tracking that from the communications perspective day in and day out, and we kind of knew it was going to be coming here. All the signs were there. And in those first eight months throughout most of 2020, you know, before we really had vaccines available, our whole job was communicating to the public what to do, how to protect yourself. Um, I didn't really have many weekends or evenings free for a long, long time. And I've covered, you know, and and dealt with lots of other outbreaks, you know, H1N1 back in 2009, the Ebola outbreak we had here in 2014. um, AIDS, uh, for that matter, came to the forefront during your tenure. Exactly. AIDS as well. And none of those rose to the level that, that COVID did, I think. And I think in part because you have to look at not only the political environment in which it occurred in, but... Again, as we talked about before, the, the, the nature of communications technology and social media is first and foremost and front and center for everybody. It's how everyone communicates these days. And so in a social media environment, this was really the first full-fledged outbreak we had that tested that. And I think we've learned a lot from how we need to approach it in the future. Yeah. What did Mark Twain say? The uh, rumor can make its way halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. Exactly. Bill Hall served 43 years in public affairs at Health and Human Services, recently retired. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having us. We'll post this interview along with a link to more about Bill at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your shows. Still to come, VA finds zero-trust cybersecurity takes a little care and feeding. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. When it comes to zero trust, the contemporary way to have cybersecurity, the Veterans Affairs Department is all about striking the right balance. The White House's requirements are both prescriptive and lenient enough to let VA find its own way to meeting the security goals of the government-wide initiative. For where VA is in its zero-trust journey, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the VA's Chief Information Officer, Kurt Delbeni. We're very focused as a result of some of the fundamentals around getting to 100% MFA. That's in terms of multi-factor authentication. That's in terms of both end users connecting to the network, but also systems using single sign-on, which implements MFA, getting that to 100% as well. We have 100% deployment of making sure our devices are secure by having um, antivirus software and constantly scanning them, constantly scanning devices in our network, our servers, making sure they're at a baseline level of, of configuration that has all, its, all the patches on it, et cetera. One of the other key things is around least privileged access. That is a, a challenging thing to do in an organization like the VA, where we have over 1,000 systems. But we've identified a set of bedrock systems, the ones that everybody depends upon, a set of critical systems that are that next level, that are really the ones that run the VA. And getting to a point where we've validated access lists for those for all of those systems is really critical. The other thing that for us, I think, is really critical is making sure that we reduce the number of non-humans connecting and increase the sophistication of the connection mechanisms uh, from server to server. So getting our, our number of service accounts down, making sure we're rotating passwords super frequently there, making sure there isn't the ability to, to get a machine fished laterally. And also, you still have to assume that that's going to happen sometimes. And so do you have great telemetry that's looking for these signals that you've been compromised? And finally, I would say getting really great around remediation. The time to cordon off that issue, the time to remediate it, you need to drive that down, down, down. And the first thing you do there is you got to measure it. How long did it, for a particular vulnerability, how, how quickly did it get closed? How quickly were you able to remediate that particular device? And so we're looking across the entire kind of frame of zero trust. and then super important to us is to be prioritized. And so we look from a technical perspective of what we think the greatest vulnerabilities are and which are the ones we want to close first. Because zero trust isn't a place where you actually get to and you're done. It's a journey that's going to be kind of, uh, you know, lather, rinse, repeat over and over again. And that's really important. So we think about always being um, risk-based, and then setting OKRs, chief uh, goals that we have for the organization and doing that at two semesters per year of defining a set of goals we want to accomplish in this semester, setting metrics on success, and then reflecting upon those and figuring out what are we going to change for the up upcoming semester to get better and better. And then the final thing I would say is we're marrying that with a great compliance strategy, which we already had in the VA, but we think we can bolster even more. That says across, you know, make sure all the systems hit that baseline set of requirements and then use the ATO gate and the FATARA gates as places where we review these systems, we review contractors to make sure they're doing the right thing. Without a doubt, the plate is full. So let me take a half right. a step back and ask when you start prioritizing this, how do you go about that? There's so many things that are important. You have a lot of goals. And you have pressure to keep the systems running as is, and, and you know security doesn't sleep. What's the process by which you're you're saying here's where we're going to start in these ten areas, forty areas, hundred areas? You kind of got to start with some of the fundamentals. I think MFA, multi-factor authentication for all devices, is a, and having great hygiene on devices that connect to the network, absolutely a top goal. It is kind of one of the the bedrocks there. I think you then also have to prioritize based on what you think the vector of compromise would look like. So, and I think that depends upon your organization. So for instance, we don't depend upon the perimeter, but we know the perimeter action, the federal government has decent security and is defended. And so, but we wanna validate that. So we spent a bunch of time early on saying, scan the network, figure out, are there any open ports? Are there any places of vulnerability there? So even though we're not depending upon the perimeter, we do wanna make sure the perimeter is secure. And then we have folks like CISA that are actually, you know, probing for us. And we love that too. So that can, that changes a little bit the complexion of what, how you're going to think about prioritization towards, you know, like if you, what is the probability of somebody fishing and going laterally? We also have things where nobody runs an admin. 
So that whole, you know, in the pub public or private sector, there are a lot of machines out there that everybody has full access. If you get in, you can do anything with that device that you want. So there's, we take that as the foundation. And on top of that, we say, what are the likely vulnerabilities? And then we marry that also with a notion of what are the most important systems we need to defend and really focusing on what the specific vulnerabilities are for those most critical systems. It almost goes back to this idea of what are your high value assets, something that obviously the White House has been pushing, OMB has been pushing, understanding what those are, and then kind of working. It's a, didn't they call it the, uh, the, the Tootsie Roll lollipop approach, right? Soft, get your soft, chewy inside and, and work to the hard outside. You have some existing tools. Talk about the gap analysis. What did it tell you, generally speaking, how are you kind of merging those existing tools with what you need new or, or different capabilities? I think we have a pretty good tool set, but there's the interesting thing is there's so much innovation going on in the industry. You can get yourself to the point of saying, you know, I've got one in every space. I've got my telemetry. I've got my software that scans devices. I've got all these different things that are that collectively are my toolkit. But there's so much innovation going on that we listen to a lot of vendors and try to understand, is there something new that they're delivering that we actually think we could make use of? And we, we pilot a bunch of stuff in the VA. But I would also say, if, you know, if there are vendors that are listening, know that if we have a lot of tools and we have a lot of people coming towards us, and it has to be that thing that um, either fits a niche that we don't have or is really kind of a different spin on things because there is such a plethora of tools that are out there. I feel pretty good about the tools that we have. The place that we get challenged is in our complexity. So for instance, we have a lot of uh, medical devices that are out there. We have to do special things to secure those devices because they're not always up to date in terms of their um, security footprint because of the nature of the biomed space and the safe harbor principle. And it's really a very challenging space to be in. And these devices all want to connect up to you know, the, their provider, so to speak. And yet that's a vulnerability. So we have to pay particular attention to the biomed space to make sure that we create subnets that actually we know exactly what the perimeter looks like. And we know that nothing can get from the outside can get in and vice versa. So I would say overall, I feel good about the tool set. It is really in for, uh, pushing the entire team to think threat-based and to also think about the ATO, the authority to operate as a hard gate that we're going to be hardcore on. Kurt Delbeni, Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and Chief Information Officer at the Veterans Affairs Department. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO. Subscribe at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, June 23rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, this federal institution has an institution of its own. Plus, a new prescription for effective government from a longtime observer. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, Cordell Schachter, the Department of Transportation Chief Information Officer, doesn't get too enamored with technology. Not new cloud services or new whiz-bang cybersecurity tools or even the DevSecOps approach DOT is implementing. Instead, Schachter tells Executive Editor Jason Miller during our recent cloud exchange about what does excite him namely solving the business and mission challenges of the transportation department. It's such a large enterprise here and, and we're a, you know, a federated government within a federated government so that we have 
operating administrations or modes with very specific missions that are, are quite different from each other, and they have different needs in their a particular area of expertise, in most cases doing some sort of oversight, possibly enforcement, and bring with them a suite of legacy applications, some of which have been migrated to the cloud, some that are on our portfolio to be migrated in the future. We've had uh, probably the, the greatest accomplishment in the areas of common systems, such as email, cloud storage, authentication, and uh, various cybersecurity tools that we're able to deploy at scale across the enterprise. I think that's been one of the biggest challenges for CIOs like yourself in, in these large agencies that the mission at FAA, of course, is much different than the mission at other places like National Transportation Security Administration and different than National Safety Transportation Board. So uh, there's a lot of pieces and parts that are moving. Where are you heading as you look to the future when it comes to cloud, cloud services? Do you still have a certain percentage of workloads you'd like to see put in the cloud over the next six or nine or 12 months? I think that's more on the how side. We're still focusing on the what. And our top priority here is cybersecurity. So that we need to move in always cybersecure manners. All new systems have to be built resiliently secure by design. And we're trying to migrate as, as, and modernize as much as possible from a legacy perspective uh, up to the extent of our resources, both staff, uh, business partners, and, and budgets will allow to improve the security profile of those applications as we modernize them. So the, that's what we're going after. Our, our second priority here is around our workforce, both to recruit the best and the brightest, but also to retain them through constant professional development training, have them take advantage of opportunities within the department. And our third priority is to do things in a best practice and modern way. So we need to develop um, a, a greater project management practice at application development oversight, as well as actually developing applications and, and do those on modern, in most cases, cloud-based secure platform. Let's jump into some of those priorities because uh, obviously you mentioned cybersecurity a couple of times. And I always know there's some sensitivities around cybersecurity, so maybe there's some things you'll just keep at a high level. But when you talk about secure by design, is that, how big of a culture change is that for transportation? How have you been able to kind of convince is not the right word, but kind of push folks in the right direction to say, hey, we just can't buy this and assume it's it's secure. We have to ensure that as we've designed the entire system, that security is, is here it comes, I know you're waiting for it, built in, not bolted on. We've all heard that too many times. There really doesn't need to be convincing in terms of the aspiration. No one will argue anymore that this doesn't have to be a consideration. But there is a cultural change that needs to happen in terms of how it's done. And, and the how means it's going to, uh, if you have a fixed budget for a particular program or project, cybersecurity is going to um, consume um, a larger portion of that budget than you might have estimated to begin with. So we, we certainly need to, to confirm our estimates to make sure that cyber is giving the, the, the proper allocation. The, the second is you're going to need um, expertise um, either full-time on that team or consulting with the team because cybersecurity isn't about just standing up a particular tool, but it's the, the three elements, the uh, people, process, as well as the technical tools that are going to get you to that secure, cyber secure uh, place that we all need to be. So I, I, I think it's, it's a, a recognition that it's hard work. The, the sayings about it, um, whether it's you know, built in, bolted on, secure by design, zero trust, they, they all are disarmingly simple, but very complicated and difficult to implement in practice. Yeah, I think convinced was not maybe the best choice of words. That's the, obviously the one that came to mind, but you're right. The, the culture change we talk a lot about when it comes to, to technology, security is probably one of the bigger things. Are you starting to kind of work through that to, to find that right balance between making sure cyber is properly funded, resourced, however people process and technology, as well as, okay, we got to keep the trains running. We got to keep the systems working. How do you find that right balance as the CIO? 
So as like another saying, don't let the little that you can do stop you from doing the little that you can do. So we literally have a meeting on cybersecurity every single day with representatives from across the enterprise. Every single operating administration is represented. And we have different agendas for, for different days of the week where we may on one day review the latest um, DHS CISA sci high vulnerability report and scan. Um, another day we may review a website scan of vulnerabilities and each of the operating administrations uh, for their systems take away a list of tasks um, that we're constantly updating and, and, and working on together. And then during periods of high vulnerability, like uh, last year during the Log4j initiative, we not just meet every day, but multiple times a day, weekends, holidays, to keep the momentum going. And the, the good news is the IT community within DOT is absolutely committed to cybersecurity. People come to the calls in greater numbers than we estimated at first, so that momentum that we created initially with the Log4j response um, continues to this day. And we have not only individual technical staff, but even leaders within that, those operating administrations joining us for, for topics that concern them. That shows that that culture change that you and I were just briefly talking about is really happening. Do you get a sense that it's just a recognition that's how important cybersecurity is? Or not just that, it's also recognition that as we've all worked from out of the office, if we worked remotely, enjoyed those changes that happened over the last few years you know, with the pandemic, post-pandemic, that they understand that how important technology is, meaning we always knew it, but now I always, always heard from CIOs that a lot of people recognize they can't live without it, right? Before it was just, oh, I have my phone or I have my laptop. What do you think it is? Or can you, it's a little bit of everything. It probably is a little bit of everything. Um, one thing that I find unique here at DOT is that a lot of the executives in the department are former operators. So they're people who are used to running things. They tend to be very well informed, hands-on, and have done before what they're asking their state and local, tribal, territorial stakeholders to do. Cordell Schachter is the Department of Transportation Chief Information Officer. Check out all of the interviews from Federal News Network's third annual cloud exchange at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a new prescription for effective government from a longtime observer. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.